Do you hear that sound? Ho 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 ho! Merry Christmas! It must be Santa Claus! Whoa! So, this is Radioland, huh? The Infinite Turtle, the, the waves through the ether fuzz roll on forever? Oh! Oh no! It's not Santa. It's just Death by DVD. It's the Death by DVD 2023 Holiday Special. The Abysmus. Welcome to the Death by DVD 2023 Holiday Special. I am Harry Scott Sullivan, and with me, during his freshman year of college, he would hang out at a local 7-Eleven with his best friend Craig Snellings, where they would microwave slices of bologna for several minutes and then throw the scalding hot meat onto the faces of transient men that stood outside begging for change. It's I, Alexander Nash! <laughs> what are you talking about? God damn it, Mary Abysmus, everyone. There's the pun. Well, it's the conveniently now titled Holiday Season 2023. It's just the holiday season. Merry Yule. I don't even think of Festivus jokes anymore. And I thought there would be nothing better to talk about than a movie that actually takes place in January and has absolutely nothing to do with Christmas, not even mentioned once in the entire movie. And I thought all of this would work wonderfully because I came up with the title the Abysmus, and that's what we're here for. We're talking about The Abyss, 1989, James Cameron. It does take place in January. It's probably more apt for a New Year's film. It's got space angels, though. It does. So kind of, it's kind of a jesus story if you think about it. Big, big spoilers. Sorry, everyone, there's space angels. Uh, it's a 1989 movie. I don't feel bad about spoiling anything, but it does have zero to do with Christmas, and depending on which version you decide to watch, at one point, the world might end because the space angels are mad at us. And in another version, it doesn't matter. None of it matters. Absolutely none of it matters. We are going to talk about the abyss and why we love it. Or don't love it. I don't know. Well, I wouldn't say I love it. I don't hate the abyss. I don't dislike the abyss. Although, in recent years, I can see... I saw it in the theater when it came out, and I enjoyed it very much. You're old. And... I'm very. I had the Abyss director's cut on Laserdisc. Yeah, wow. If that tells you a fucking anything, I had the ooh T two with in a box set and the how many disc was it? it? Was like eight fucking discs for the Abyss because each side can only be half an hour. Uh, you got to flip disc halfway through until you like unless you bought like an upgrade machine and it'll flip the disc for you. Pretty fancy Laserdisc. Um, technology it's a shame that this technology lasted i think at its peak what eight years 
that that so much was invested in. Laserdiscs like, were in the seventies, but as far as mass market appeal, like yeah, maybe eight years of the nineties. Yeah, it it just it existed and then was so easily replaced by VHS. And and as our time goes on now with streaming and the lack of physical media, back then nobody thought any of it would work. That each predecessor was ridiculous. Tapes, you can't put movies on tapes; they won't last. And I still have films from the late eighties that work perfectly fine. I'm pretty sure I have the clamshell. VHS video store rental version that never got taken back to the Errol's video store of The Abyss. I know I still have Alien and Aliens. Since we're talking about, you know, Laserdisc VHS, do we want to talk about how, uh, what William Friedkin thinks about what Oliver Stone thinks about DVDs? <laughs> I love that interview. <laughs> if I can find <laughs> it, I'll put the sound in it if I can actually Who find it. Who said that? Oh, fuck him! <laughs> and then he goes on to say something of he's just pissed off because nobody wants to buy Alexander, which was fucking rotten. It was an abysmal movie. You know, the only reason people watched Alexander was because there was a rumor that you could see Colin Farrell's awful, huge cock. Uh, and I don't mean it's like an awful cock. It's just awfully huge. And you can. It's like 12 inches and you see it dangling. It's huge. That's the fun fact of this episode. Oh, we're talking about Colin Farrell's dick now? That's where we're at. Yeah. All right. Well, it dug a giant trench and a sub crashed in it. Um, <laughs> so the abyss. Um, James Cameron had Hollywood kind of at his feet at this point, and he could, after Aliens, make pretty much any movie he wanted to. So he decided to write this epic story. No idea how he was going to do it. And then he said, well, if you just give me as much money as you possibly can... I'll just basically do it for real because that's how James Cameron directs. And I'd say that's like now things are a little bit different. He got way more into the technology of like filmmaking and 3d and cameras and all that stuff. But like he was all about like, just, yeah, we'll just build it. We'll just put this set in a giant nuclear reactor tank and fill it with water. And we'll just, they'll just dive. I don't want to like, overly kiss his ass, but I do feel that, yes, he's moved more into technology, but it's not so much like he moved into it. He created all the technology he's now using. So it's still well, that's of... what I mean. He was a madman director who like didn't give a shit of just like he would just make the biggest thing possible and just like press the envelope on that. And now he's pressing the envelope on creating new technology like he's less interested in like building a giant, like, half the Titanic in Mexico. I'll do it CGI, but look at this camera. It's the greatest camera that's ever existed. See, that's what that's more of what I yeah. mean. He's changed his priorities slightly. But uh, it's also still in the same direction, because I, I don't know if this is an IMDB piece of trivia, but I'm almost pretty certain, I've only seen, seen it once, but the abyssal aliens show up in Avatar. So they have a home world. They very well might be from... The Navi fucking planet. I have always had a very big soft spot for the work of James Cameron. I grew up with Aliens. It was always one of my favorite historical movies. I'm sure if you remember the live Death by DVD, I tried to reference Aliens or at least a Bill Paxton film per episode. Um, And the Titanic came out when I was still fairly young. I think I was like... In the third or maybe fourth grade, and I saw it three times. It was, the, it was the very don't first be rubbing movie. that in my face. Well, here, here's this is even worse. It was the very first movie I'd ever seen in theaters that, and this is one to be proud of because it's a very long movie. I did not have to pee. 
the first time I saw it. I was so proud. I remember that to this day of like, oh, the Titanic first movie that I didn't have to stop and go pee all the way through. I'm a big boy. I can watch the long ones. <laughs> I, I enjoy art. Uh, and there there are stinkers. This is probably going to offend the audience, and I know you'll back me up at least with it. Never cared for True Lies. Didn't like it as a kid. Didn't really like it as I an adult. I fucking hate True Lies. Yeah, there it is. Um, there it is. There is a good movie in there. I like. I think the parts of concept it. is super strong uh, about like you know him lying to his wife and him having the suburban thing, and maybe their love affair, like with her love affair with Bill Pax and all that, like that can all be included. But all like the weird spy terrorist shit that's going. I don't give a fuck for yeah. any of that. It's two and a half hours long. You could cut an entire hour of that movie, and it would like it would work way better. I feel it could have just been another movie. And I mean, but one out of uh, not an incredibly lengthy career, but like Piranha 2, that wasn't something I got into till I was a teenager. And it's more around the lines of this movie's awesome because James Cameron took it fucking hostage and threatened to goddamn burn it if they didn't let him get his way. And he didn't get his way, started very humbly working, doing miniature and background set work for Roger Corman. It's where he met the late, great, beautiful, we love you so much, Bill Paxton. They were both working for fucking Roger Corman, which... On Galaxy of Terror, actually. Or Galaxy of Horror, which I can't... The Eddie Albert one. I think it's Terror. We're probably both wrong. Fuck it. But I, somebody like Roger Corman kind of takes us back to the beginning of this and you discussing James Cameron and the type of director he is. I think most of his motivation and his style and his aptness to getting a job done 100%, as so many people can say, comes from the school of Roger Corman. He wouldn't have been anything unless he had learned from Roger Corman. And some of the most successful people of all time, Jack Nicholson, Ron Howard, they were formed from this school of absolute greatness. And it was just like a few years later, from the late 70s into the early 80s, that we get this first massive, tremendous piece, The Terminator from James Cameron, and he just... He never stopped until, I think, around Titanic, and that's where his motivation as an artist seems to have changed, and he's gotten more into, I think, the future. And also, he's he's very deep into wildlife preservation, preservation of the planet, uh, veganism. He's fucking, like, the only person that's been to the bottom of the Mariana Trench more than once. I think he took Bill Paxton with him. Uh, just an insane almost like a James Bond villain kind of guy. Like, you just read this list of achievements and stuff that he's done, and you start waiting for this part that says, and then in 2025, he took over the moon and built his first base there, you know? Like, he's just almost unfathomably unreal as as a person. And the abyss happens to be, for, for me, I think the most exuberant but bizarre movie, not just out of his category of work, but of that era itself, because it it's just... I don't understand on paper how any one executive went like, yeah, fuck it. Let's do it. Let's let's build this 45-foot deep set and a nuclear reactor, and let's do it. Let's, let's fucking drown Ed Harris. Let's try it out and see what happens. I, <laughs> how do you get the licenses to do this? He was the golden boy at that point because he had made Terminator, which was a giant success, and he had made Aliens, which was even bigger. And everybody was clamoring to work with Cameron. The executives, they were not comfortable with the, the script for Abyss even before they started, but they were kind of given the benefit of the doubt. And then the budget started getting... But also, James Cameron is incredibly persuasive, and that's one of his biggest things as a director. And as you were talking about how like hard he can push, and some of that was cocaine, but also some of it is 
just this tenacity has, which can also rub people the wrong way. It gets a lot of things done. I think it's gotten a lot of things done in his career, but it's also like alienated, like especially yeah. the cast for the abyss, because like a lot of them had, you know, Ed Harris almost died. Mary Elizabeth master Antonio got the shit beat out of her. And she like, she fucking walked. She walked off the set and like, I'm done. I'm done with this because it was just that hard of a shoot. I mean, you're working, you're diving, you're diving 10 hours a day. And like just the stop downs in between scenes would go like six hours and just how intense the pressure was and everything because of how difficult it was to film all this stuff underwater. I mean, cause I think that's really overlooked and, and just, us being critics, you tend to read other critics. I surfed through Letterboxd, I've been reading other people's reviews, and it seems most people, at least modern critics, really tend to leave out, this is all pretty fucking real. It's not at this depth that they're saying it is in the movie, but they're shooting in freezing temperatures to the point that during breaks, the only place warm, the actors couldn't even get out of water. They would just go into hot tubs because nothing would be warm enough to keep them from actually freezing to death and dying. Many Bean also almost died on this film. It it was not so much uh, sparked with tragedy, but there were issues so deep throughout this movie that it's not like the, the cast and crew got mad at Jim and everything's okay now. Most of them won't fucking talk to James Cameron at all. They won't have anything to do with him. They won't do any behind-the-scenes features. They won't discuss the movie because of the actual harm on one hand, you can say he put them in, and there are some instances that it really does seem like he was working more for a shot than the protection of the people, but I don't know, you know, William Friedkin firing guns on set. Is it a good <laughs> thing to do? No, it's terrible. Bring but it back to him. It did, but it got the fucking shot. It worked, you know? I don't know. I don't want to defend the mega millionaire who drowns people, but you know, I'm, I'm on his side. Like they blew up a building for Terminator Two for Christ's sakes. He was able to like uh, they built a Harrier jet for Christ's sakes, for uh, True Lies. They like he's always about doing these things like as real as possible and try not to rely too much on like digital effects, which seems kind of funny now. But um, how much he like would is gung ho about that sort of thing, and he was very much this was I'd say the height of him being gung ho about like he built the uh, underwater rig from the abyss in a nuclear reactor like a half-finished nuclear reactor in north carolina and what's crazy is he built stuff that actually was working though like those interior shots they are underwater in a great deal of them that's how they get those amazing shots from the outside so his science behind stuff is just fucking insane it's almost a shame that he became a fucking filmmaker <laughs> you know why why didn't you join nasa or become an, an engineer or something that james cameron's mind works so wildly he wants these things to be real on screen and then creates them and then it's like he created fucking navy technology there's a scene in the movie where they use something called oxygenated fluorocarbon fluid that is like amniotic fluid that you can breathe underwater with that's real he had people actually come and the animals which is i believe to this day the only thing that has ever been used with this. The animals are really breathing in that. This is real technology, but they didn't... That's actually how Ed Harris almost drowned, was shooting that scene. They didn't use it on him. He just had to hold his breath with a bunch of pink goo in his helmet. And I'm pretty sure, like, beside the point, um, as it was short enough, uh, shot in North Carolina, 
Earl Owensby. I think they used Earl Owensby stu- Studios because I don't think he was in like producing movies at that point. Yeah, the great Earl Owensby, anyone? Creator of Tales from the Third Dimension. Oh, I I know who Earl Owensby is. Yeah, there we go. Hundra, uh, producer of the, like shit like the Dark Power, just like big time exploitation regional filmmaker in the like the seventies and eighties in North Carolina. So I'm pretty sure they inherited like his studios. But then again, I think Dino De Laurentiis might have purchased those two. So maybe I just don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. And it's so weird, though, I mean, even bringing up Dino De Laurentiis, like James Cameron came from the school of very ultra cheap, let's just fucking do it ourselves directors. So it's neat seeing where that mentality went, where he, you know, imagine Roger Corman with a $120 million budget. It would fucking be a James Cameron movie. That all of this stuff comes from this one old man who made some of the worst movies <laughs> on the planet. I mean, if you go through every fucking film Roger Corman has made, some of them are just awful. The Crab Monster one's really good. I was watching that the other night. I like that one. What's that one called? Is it, um... I called it the Crab Monster one because I couldn't remember the name, man. That's yeah, I- <laughs> god damn it. Because it's not Island Claws. That's something completely different. Five hours later. Anyway... Besides the point, we've just been mostly talking about like the technical achievements and what a prick James Cameron is. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was a very difficult movie to shoot. I mean, like the logistics of it were insane and it drove everyone insane. And but they did get a final product. And at this point, there are like what three different versions of it because he just put out that new one. Yeah, the new one is like a whopping three hours long. But it's not so much new stuff, just heavy extensions of previous existing footage. See, that's I'm pretty sure my favorite version of the film is the director's cut. You know, the one they released to theaters, the original cut, because that's his cut. He had final cut on the abyss. So all these other things where it says director's cut, uh, he cut all that shit. And I kind of think I kind of think he needed it. That's where I'm going with this, like, as we're talking about the abyss of what my opinion is with it, is that it, like, a lot of this stuff, especially the tidal wave stuff, it's okay it got cut. I'm okay with it not being yeah. there. I mean, it, it really reminds me of Aliens, and it's the same story with that. He had final cut on that film. The director's cut has some really interesting scenes, but two hours and 45 minutes, I don't think it's anywhere near as successful. There's one scene that I would have kept in the movie. That's it, sentry guns. And it just helps explain how the aliens realize that they could get into the ceiling. That's the only... Nothing else connects. I don't care that her daughter died. She's been in, in hypersleep 57 years. That carries some brevity with it when you say 57 years. It worked for itself. And just as you said, I was a little taken aback because I knew how long the abyss was. I think it's like two hours, 20 minutes and the movie just ran and ran and ran and ran. And there is so much at the end of the film that just doesn't matter. It has no effect. It feels like exposition just thrown in at the end, really of like, well, this is what it's all been about the entire time. Cause they've talked about the, the aliens throughout the film of like, Oh, they could be under there. And, but it's so much more about the other story about the nuclear warhead 
and all that. Yeah, I mean, there's a duality between love and politics and then the whole alien thing. And when you look at all the different endings for this movie, there's one where they're going to destroy us because of nuclear war and the arms race and the Cold War and all these awful things. And it's fine and it works because you've got this political agenda that's throughout the entire film with Michael Bean's characters and the Navy SEALs. But at the end of the day, making it about love and just the connection that people can have works with such... I think it was sufficient in the original version of it of all the like the like as like what you're deeming to be the, like the political aspects of it. I think that's all inherent to the film itself and in in the original cut it's there and it's enough of it. I like I don't need the, like the threat by the cuz really the aliens are more of icing on the cake of what the movie is about through most of the running time which is about these people going through these struggles and underwater and all the you know the dangers that are involved in that and the aliens are the icing on the cake. They really just need that cameo. I don't need them to be this omnipresent thing that we just throw all this shit in at the end of like, oh, well, they've been like really controlling all of this. And it's just like, OK, well, this is just it's too much. And the fact that he cut that, I think, shows better restraint. Well, on that point, too, it's almost offensive. Like, so you guys just watched the Holocaust you didn't stop anything before this point. No, Michael Bean became the problem. Yeah. I'm flooding the earth now, bitches. You guys are really going to do it here at this time in this weather. All right. It, 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 and that's kind of the the fault to the fans, I think. You know, and it's it's always a, a great thing to be able to sell your product again and again and again. But it worked far more successfully the very first time. And some of the faults I have with the movie are just skin-deep ones, because you go through the whole movie villainizing Michael Bean and the Navy SEAL team. It's not their fault. It's not his fault that he got sick doing the descent thing. They explain it that it can happen to anybody. He's a dick for not reporting it, but he was taking his job really seriously. I mean, imagine. These are Navy SEALs. He was probably ordered by the fucking president. Some slap on the shoulder. The country is depending on you, son. It's a really important thing. So you can have this almost relatability with the guy. You don't want to fuck up your job. You want to make sure you do the best job possible. And he just goes fucking batshit. And there's a scene where he's like, I don't know if it's to bring him back to reality. I, I don't like this scene, even though it looks cool. Is it be- the, the knife? Yeah, the where he's just slashing. cutting himself. Yeah, that's what he's doing. He's just cutting. I mean, like, you know, like a, a teenager would. Just to kind of, yeah, br- break that tension and to give himself some sort of reality. and But also with the knife, it just menaces this character and you, you hate him. You're watching the movie and it's like, well, he's just fucking ruining everything. And I feel it's almost a misdirection of characters. We have this familial unit and it's everyone that's already existed in the movie. We grow to love them and we have to like rebel against the government and it almost seems like kind of a fuck you from James Cameron like yeah the US government's always getting into problems and doing all these awful things and I don't know I I, I don't think it matters I love people underwater and fucking aliens those were my two takeaways from this that I get so distracted by the political I mean I call it politics because it's taking place in 89 during the Cold War so throughout the whole movie Bean and his people are convinced that it's Soviets with submarines they're arming I mean, a you nuclear have the missile. whole sinking of the submarine and that raises tension and like that's like that's kind of the 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 bedrock of what the story is written about and I'm okay with that stuff being there I'm okay with what I'm not okay with is just kind of some of the more heavy-handed stuff towards the end because ultimately 
what I enjoy about this movie and what saves the movie and what I think is the thing, the only thing that makes this movie work at all is Ed Harris. Ed Harris oh, and sure. his relationship with Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. If you didn't have an actor of Ed Harris's caliber to really deliver the reality of what's going on in this kind of it's a ridiculous scenario. If you didn't have his emotion and his love for his wife, like from him throwing the wedding ring around to uh, wedding ring down the uh, toilet to him having that blue hand the rest of the movie to the resuscitation scene to like all that stuff is like it's the core of what makes everything work. Because the rest of it, it, like you can, you risk the fact that you're going to make things get very ridiculous. It always becomes comical of like the sci-fi aspects if you don't ground it in an incredibly human story. And that even goes for something like Aliens. What grounds that movie is the relationship between Ripley and Newt. That grounds that story into some basis of reality. It's not like high-tech sci-fi nonsense. Is what we mostly get from movies now you get starship troopers but that works for different reasons that's a paul verhoeven movie but if you were going to make aliens as starship troopers and not have that uh fascistic message in it and it was just space marines attacking aliens, then it doesn't work as well as having that very human story and it, the same thing goes for the abyss and all the relationship stuff works well the characters work well giving all the characters like very distinct personalities. That's what I want to bring up is is just the the very rich cast that we have with this movie. I think this is may I mean Aliens is fucking Aliens, so that's off the table. But when you look at just uh, studio films in general, you have a casting agency. I was watching Survival Quest the other night, and that's like the first credit is all of this was pieced together by a casting agency that Coscarelli went through. There's not a lot of chemistry. Everyone on the cast in this movie it's obvious because they spent so much time together forming an actual unit and became friends, but... They all had to learn to dive together. Uh, but some of them are just in, intense. Todd Graff is hippie. Amazing character. I love Catfish, Leo Burmester. Is it Burmester or Burmester? Burmeister? Burmeister? Burmeister, I think. I think it's Burmeister. J.C. Quinn is Sonny. Kimberly Scott is One Night Stand. All of them, and they all have these really cute nicknames that attach to their said personalities, but all of them immediately become... Uh, you 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 get this sense of affection toward them as almost as if you're a voyeur, if you're an unseen cast member. And very early into the movie, there's a catastrophe and a great deal of the cast dies. And it's coy of Cameron because over all these people die. None of them are who we've been introduced to. There's several, I think seven people die, including two Navy SEALs. And you don't really see their faces. And there's a really great scene where they're using one of the mini submarines to go through and look at the flooded compartments. And you you see somebody's face and it leaves you aghast, but it's nobody you really recognize. And I love the fact that like in Aliens, you have so many characters that you fall in love with and they all fucking die. Most of them die in one scene and it sucks. In this iteration of his alien journey, you really get to uh, live through them. There's something at the end of this movie that I find remarkable that it's like you. I felt like clapping in a fucking empty theater, which I've always found asinine to clap at a, a movie theater it's not like anybody there involved it is asinine don't it, it's not something you feel it just is nobody's there nobody cares and you're small they can't town. hear you prick it's fine stop clapping people do it on airplanes too that's the worst one fucking don't clap when the plane lands just get your shit and get the fuck off the plane 
Uh, but <laughs> you really feel the sense of like, oh my god, they made it. Like, I wonder what they did next. Like, there's this just great adventurous spirit, but it's so muddled throughout whatever iteration of the film you want. And I don't want to sound like I don't like, and I got to stop calling it the political aspects, because much of the movie does pend on this. The very first scene is a very... Uh, like, I mean, God, you had two or three big submarine movies in the late 80s, early 90s. This is the most exciting submarine film uh, over the Hunt for Red October and films like that. And then the movie kicks into full drive that the submarine, it's a U.S. submarine, it encounters these aliens. Well, you don't fucking know it's an alien at the beginning of the movie, but it causes it to sink. Long story short, there's multiple, a, a great deal, a gross amount of nuclear warheads on the submarine. So the Navy's called in, and then we get introduced to our core group of characters. I love the fact, though, that this massive budget James Cameron movie, one of the very first actors on screen is Chris Elliott. You guys remember when Chris Elliott was famous enough <laughs> <laughs> to carry a movie? He still is famous. He still does. He was on Shit's Creek for like five seasons. He's still doing fine. Uh, I, I don't mean it as a slight toward Chris Elliott. I think he's hysterical. He's he's a gem and a great comedian. I, I love him to death, but it always takes me aback and makes me feel quite old now, even though I was just talking about I was like in the third grade when Titanic came out, but I see Chris Elliott when he still had hair, and it's like, oh shit! Man, I remember his small hand. Help! Help! Here. Oh, take my hand. Ah! Come on! You're gonna fall unless you take my hand. No, give me your other hand. Oh, my other hand isn't strong enough. You take my little hand. No, get it away from me! The Abyss is an experience like no other, writes Peter Travers of Rolling Stone magazine. It's the greatest underwater adventure ever filmed, the most consistently enthralling of the summer blockbusters, one of the best pictures of the year. It's also something even more unexpected, a love story of shattering impact. The Abyss. But you were just um, bringing up character, and that's what this movie stands on is its characters. And on the page in the script, yeah, I'm sure they were somewhat distinct, and there's some descriptions of them that make them distinct, but what really makes them distinct is the actress hired to play them, the costuming. The costuming informs so much about those characters, and the costumes that they pick for them are not like repeated throughout the film. Like, Hippie has his own sort of wardrobe. Um uh, catfish. His name's Catfish, isn't it? Yes, Catfish. That's I. I was pretty sure I was right. It's Catfish. Catfish. DeVries, he has his, I believe, his own distinct uh, dress. Um, and they all have their own character designed outfits. And the same thing goes for something like the production design. It's a very well designed movie, like behind the scenes production designed. And it really is one of the big strengths because it gives it a believable setting. It gives you independent, interesting characters with believable actors. And that's really like the core of what can make movies great because as I've talked about at least on this show numerous times is plot is bullshit. Story's where it's at because the plot of the abyss is kind of fucking stupid. Nuclear war and angel 
fish aliens, what the fuck ever. It's a very 1989 plot, though. That's the thing I think that has to be taken into consideration is writing the politics and the politics of the time. It might be a little... You know, boring or, or blase or kind no, of goofy. It's fine now, that it's but... there. That's not why my point is. My point is the story is a human story about these people who are involved and the relationships they have. And then what ultimately saves everything is um, humanity's love for each other in certain aspects. So, you know, like as, you know, love, like a someone sacrificing themselves for somebody they love. And that, like, that's all the very core. Um, important part of the story that's the story the story is not about aliens and shit like that's just plot it's not like plot it helps i mean it really helps but but my take at the end of the day is the compassion and i i love all the characters but as you said earlier pinpointing on ed harris his just passion makes you feel alive you feel like calling somebody that you he's used a to lunatic love. in the movie he's he great is just as much of a lunatic as he was when he played billy that's the role i can like can compare it to the most when he played billy and night riders like those two like are like, they have a kinship of characters. And Ed Harris has played other, like, you know, emotional characters over the years. But those two are two of my favorite performances. And also, I think, like, it's... He's almost playing the same guy in both of them. A little bit different in Knight Riders, though, because uh, Billy's a little bit more of a lunatic than <laughs> he is in fucking The Abyss. But you, you get my drift. Emotional, like, men. Powerful emotional men is like what he plays in those two films. Once courageous knights roamed the land, searching for adventure, ready to brave any challenge. Knight Riders. The knight is a fighting machine. Disciplined in mind and heart, and noble to the death. Night Riders. Action. Adventure. Romance. Heraldry. Pageantry. Magic got to do with the soul, man. Only the soul got destiny. Knight Riders, they ride for the crown. They fight for honor. That kid thinks I'm evil Knievel. That kid thinks you're William the Knight. You're his hero. I'm not trying to be a hero. I'm fighting the dragon. Following a dream as far as it will take them. Because a legend lives as long as someone believes. This isn't just a roadside carny anymore. Not for some of us. It's a lot more than that. It's a whole lot more. You know that, Morgan. You guys, it's the most fun I got in my life. I just don't want to see you all break up. You think it's breaking up? It's money, Billy. It's all to do with money. Money makes the world go around, even your world. Small town jails is, uh, uncomfortable places. <laughs> Damn uncomfortable. <laughs> Throw down the gauntlet, take up the challenge, a new age begins, romance and adventure live.
Camelot. That is a state of mind. Night Riders, rated R. Well, too, even with the characters, when everyone is slowly introduced and we learn that his ex-wife is coming on board, everyone has a great deal of disdain for her. But as the movie progresses, we find that they all have similarities. They all have passions with each other. And when Lindsay drowns, it, that that is the greatest scene in the movie. Just Ed Harris going batshit. This is the, stre- uh, the, the, the scene that Mary Elizabeth... Uh, Master on Antonio, I always say her name wrong, walked on, that it just ran and ran and ran while she's getting pummeled and beaten. She walked off set and said, you're treating us like animals. We we are not animals. But you look at that final product. You look at that scene. I love Knight Riders maybe just as much as you, but in those few moments, Ed Harris is, is the finest actor of all time. Fuck Laurence Olivier. That scene is so real. That's his wife. And then she comes back, and the, the beginning of the movie floats around in your head of, man, these people knew each other. They worked with each other for God knows how long. She, at one point, the character Lindsay explains how she created this and when she created it, and you get this very brief idea of the love and romance that her and Bud have shared with each other and how great this their work is for them and it's this community that's built in i want to say in such a short period of time but there's nothing short about any version of the abyss that you're watching and you add the duality of michael bean and all of his crew you've got his little crony then the one that gets wounded that ends up becoming somewhat of a hero at the end of the story every place is played so fucking perfectly and a lot of it's just doing the same stuff they've always done i don't think bean is doing anything different than what he did in aliens it's the exact same performance this time he just gets to get a little bit more riled up but it fucking works and that's what works in aliens that's what works in terminator it's great just call michael bean let him mutter for a little while it even worked for fucking Friedkin twice. One of the few actors to work with Hurricane Billy more than once. <laughs> well, you're talking about Ed Harris' performance. We were talking about Night Riders. Uh, it's the Peach Pit principle. George Romero wrote in the script for Night Riders when all the knights come back and they're going to fight for the crown. He wrote in the script, Billy's chin slowly becomes a peach pit. And in the commentary, you can hear Romero saying, and then Ed did it. I mean, he like like he really tried to make it happen. And I've seen Ed Harris do that since. And that's what, especially in that resuscitation scene where Ed Harris is just in full control of uh, this sounds so douchey, but he's in full control of his instrument. He knows how to control his face. He knows how to like give the director what he needs as far as expression goes. It's not just about yelling. The yelling does help the emotion and um, the words he's speaking, but also his face. You have to know how to use your face appropriately as an actor. And I think Ed Harris is like one of the most amazing faces for that. Cause he can do so like think of all the roles he's played over the years and just like how versatile he can be and how emotional he can be. Um, even in like non-emotional roles, he can still like even something like a history of violence where his character is bereft of emotion for the most part. He's still like pushing that performance. He's pushing it to like the nth degree and like nobody else could like top Ed Harris in a lot of fucking ways as an actor. Yeah, I can't think of anyone not at even that time or now that could capitalize on such a great performance 
and I, I don't want to defend the methods that James Cameron used, but I think a lot of the things that happened in the film make sort of the performances that I was watching an interview with Ed Harris and there's the it's the scene where he is descending into the abyss at the end of the movie and he is breathing the pink goo stuff that he had to go down and they were shooting it sideways and pulling him kind of on this underwater tractor to shoot the scene with the camera held sideways and he was down there holding his breath with the pink water and they would have somebody that would have an air tank or something nearby and the guy got caught up on a a hose at some point so ed calls you know for a cut he needs some breath and the guy is nowhere to be found and when somebody finally shows up the thing's put in his mouth backward and he ends up intaking a great deal of water into his lungs he almost dies he he almost dies while filming this scene and he's driving home and just breaks down in his car and is terribly upset and it's as from his words was just this mix of feelings that he was mad at himself for not being able to kind of to conquer this to to conquer the dragon to get over this and then the fact that it shocked him so much almost losing his life and obviously anger toward the person that put him in the position James Cameron that he came back with that anger and that tenacity the very next day and instead of going fuck you I'm not doing this I don't want to say he did it better than he would have before but I think Cameron has this uh drill instructor-esque ability of, Didn't he end up punching Cameron? I think he way? did. I mean, I, I, this this movie was so hard and so long to film. I can't imagine not butting heads with Cameron. And he's very cold and calculating. He seems like he doesn't care. And then at the end of the day, he's your buddy again. That it's pushing and pushing and pushing and trying. And I just think maybe he could lighten up a little bit on people. I don't think he's as abrasive and terrible now as he was then, but of course he's not done coke in like 35 years, and I'm sure that played a massive motherfucking factor into that yeah. and several of his divorces. <laughs> yeah, I think the guy getting off coke, like, you know, the, the cokehead director's like, you can jump three stories, you bitch. What are you having a problem with? Well, can you put an airbag down? Don't be a little bitch. Coke will get us through this. Yeah, you can hold your breath for 10 minutes. Don't fucking tell me you can't. Think you're a fish. Become a fish. You're a fish man. Now you're a fish. Do it. There's some problems, and it's. It, I hate always referencing fucking Friedkin, but I love him so much. But it's not okay to fire a gun on set, especially a really, like, an actual loaded gun. It wasn't blanks or anything like that. Wasn't a starter pistol. It was just a gun. Yeah, he just, it was his personal fucking gun. Just fired it on set. But God damn it, you watch that final version of The Exorcist, and it's like okay. And I I got to see a couple months ago, right before he died, Friedkin decided to edit The Exorcist one more time. Didn't add or remove any scenes. It's that version you've never seen before. That's his full version. But he changed the fucking colors on the movie and the color grading, and just it just tweaked it a little bit, almost more monochromatic. Uh, so like those mint curtains and things really pop a little bit more and it does add an existing level of fright to the film and I just recently saw The Abyss this whole new version the 4k isn't going to be released until March and I got to see that whole big shebang on the big screen and on one hand it's it's remarkable seeing The Abyss on the big screen it is a treat it is a gift but I just don't think anything you could do now would make the movie better 
I don't think adding, and you can tell some of the digital effects have been replaced. He's tinkered with it. He said it only took him a week very brazenly, but the original 1989 movie exceedingly is better. It's more enjoyable. It has a deeper fluency to it. I just don't, it seems like there's background talking in the new one and, and not like there actually is, but you have maybe 20 minutes of these giant tidal waves forming over the world because the aliens are going to kill everyone, but they're st- and it's just awful. It's 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 too busy. It's not necessary. Again, it's it just, takes us from the set too. Stuck. You know, you have this very isolated idea, and you have these very few characters, and then suddenly you open it up to the whole wide world. Like I don't. Oh. I, I, I'm very busy caring about the people that I'm caring about. Now you're saying that I have to worry about everyone all over. What? <laughs> and that sounds terrible of me, but you made a like very important point. Cause it's my point that I've never told you, but you also have the exact same opinion about it as I do. Whoop, that there it once is. you go to dry land, you have broken any sort of tension that you had underwater. Cause you would only occasionally go up top to like the, the rig up top that they're like still in communication with. And most of that's just in a control room. Yeah. You don't get like, Oh, like, you know, might get some establishing shots of it on the outside, but it's so claustrophobic that you're stuck in like the underwater rig the entire time with these people. And you, you get to know these characters and to like, you know, root for these characters. And then when you start cutting to random extras, Tons of like, you know, paid extras who are running away from time. It's just like you've like killed the tension that was like you've been creating for an entire movie and you should have never gone outside. You should have never gone that far and introduced like, you know, like disaster movie nonsense to it because it just it throws off the human story that you're trying to tell and you're telling something else. Now you're telling some big budget blockbuster thing that is like, oh, that's just that's dressing it's extra hairspray i don't need that there's a scene where a giant tidal wave is about to crash down on the statue of liberty it's too much it's this is a late 90s day after tomorrow all of a sudden exactly this is like a late 90s echo terror thing it's not uh, but you know you were just talking about when they show the control tower and they show the people on the boat there's a hurricane that hits, and there's so many different things that is happening at once in this movie, and it almost seems like an overcrowded plate, but each thing has a really important purpose. You've got the submarine that sinks at the beginning. We know something sunk it, but we don't know what it is. The Navy SEALs now come down. We know that it's 1989, and if some of our audience needs a history lesson, there was a giant fucking wall up between two different countries, and the communists were very angry, and we were fighting them. That was a big thing. Google the fucking Cold War. 89 was was one of the peak points of this in U.S. history. Uh, All of these things play together, and then suddenly a hurricane hits, and now the rig is not where it's supposed to be, and they can't get them back up. And at the same time, this is where things play into importance because it's one of the key plots of the movie. And I was speaking about how you don't really have sympathy for Michael Bean's character, but I thought this was important, that they are forced from their orders to go get those warheads and to activate them just in case it is Russians down there that are fucking with them. And Bean says to Bud, his name's Lieutenant Coffee. Coffee says to Bud when he gets back, we, we didn't have an option, it was orders. He even knows the peril they're in because this hurricane has happened. So after that point, 
every time that we see the control station, they are in just as much peril as everyone below. There's this hurricane going, somebody has to shut a door because wind and rain. It's very effective with all of our centralization of where these characters are at, that no matter what we're viewing, everyone is in some sort of peril and terror, and then some fucking guys are on the beach at Coney Island. And it, it just, you have this overwhelming responsibility I think to care as an audience member and it was cut for a reason. It didn't work for a reason and referencing the goddamn aliens director's cut again all of those scenes. It's effective I guess to learn that Ripley's daughter dies but it doesn't do anything for the point of the story. It doesn't help anything progress. Nor does Newt's parents. Yeah the, the Jordans at the beginning. It's cool. It looks cool. It's really neat. We get to see the derelict but now you okay so they it's the same story as Alien. You brought somebody back without protocol waiting 24 hours and now, okay same fuck it don't need it. The sentry guns is the only thing that makes sense to me because then all of a sudden the movie just kind of jumps like without the sentry guns how did they get into the ceilings who cares who knows but the guns drove them up there still it's semantics that don't matter because just as with aliens the director's cut is fucking damn near perfect I think The Abyss, the 1989 theatrical, is, I wouldn't say a perfect movie, but it's about a five-star film. It's a, it's a feat of magic of how it was made. That's mostly its technical aspects. What The behind-the-scenes is infinitely more yeah. interesting than the film itself. Like, just the documentaries and just seeing the insanity of big-budget James Cameron, no one's going to stop me. And just like go on through all of his movies through that that time period where he was just doing crazy fucking sh he blew up a bridge in True Lies for Christ's sakes, like literally a bridge he blew it up. Jamie Lee Curtis is hanging from a hell like just doing crazy fucking shit, and like now he's gone like almost full CGI. But I think like Zack Snyder is a perfect example of it. I'm not a, a fan of his as a director, but he's. A lot of people have gone his direction where it I don't have to wait for six o'clock at night anymore. It can be golden hour all the time. And like there's been kind of a loss in filmmaking where we're no longer trying to capture like moments in reality, no matter how farcical your story is, no how much myth is in it. Like even something like Galaxy of Terror. We'll talk about that real quick. It's completely alien world space, you know, Roger Corman, crazy shit. But Robert England is actually there. Joni from Joni Loves Chachi is actually there. But it's a it may be faked, it may be all sets, but they're capturing a moment in time that actually happened. The Abyss captured moments in time that actually happened. And when you get to all, like all this digital, you get to all this crazy overcolor correction, you're no longer like capturing moments in time. It's no longer time travel. Now it's all of a sudden just about well, we can just paint pictures and that's good enough. It's like, no, you were doing like you were taking pic like painting pictures and making those pictures come to reality. And now we're doing the opposite. We're just like, eh, yeah, fuck it. Here's the step in the process, you know, like production art. They used to paint like backdrop like, you know, um Matt paintings. You have the paintings yeah. of your 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 design, your set designs, and this is what we're going to try to do. This is what it's going to look like. This will be the matte painting. And now it's just like it's all just a fucking matte painting. There is no like there it's just it sucks so much of what I loved about filmmaking out. And with the abyss, it's kind of and you know, it, it extended itself past the abyss, but the abyss is just it's part of that 
long lost era where just like let's make all of this a reality. Let's build brand new types of dive suits so I can see my actor's full face. Let's like like James Cameron's doing all was doing all kinds of crazy shit like that. And he's still doing it as far as technology goes, but it's not technology. He's trying to figure out how to make computers scan people's faces better. And I'm just not as interested in that. I mean, I find it, in theory level, I find it as interesting, but when you sit down and watch it, there's a magic missing to it. And I've enjoyed both Avatar films. I've only seen them theatrically, and I've enjoyed the experience doing so, but but post that moment walking out, it's like, ah, well, that was cool, but I'm never going to watch it at home. I've refused to watch the first Avatar movie on my TV because I don't have this. I mean, I have a pretty fucking nice TV, but it's not 3D. It's not fancy. All the stuff that it was made for in the moment, it turns films kind of into rock concerts. And I have this belief that, and it's not just my fucking belief, it's not just me, but most movies are made to be seen a certain way, and that is the theatrical way. So if you can catch a movie when it comes out, it is a bit like seeing your favorite band, but you can relive the greatest hits at home, and I'll just use Aliens again, just as good as home as it is in the theater. It's Aliens, it's a great movie. But something like Avatar, Avatar 2, it fucking sucks when you're watching it at home. You only have this this world tour to see it and to enjoy it and then sometimes it leaves you know you only have a couple days to see it in IMAX that's going that's happening right now with the new Godzilla Godzilla minus one it's a brilliant brilliant movie it's designed for IMAX the effect is never going to be anywhere near as cool even if you're seeing it in theaters that to me is cheating us that's bullshit if a movie is made to be shown a certain way then fucking show it that way in its entire run but it's a fault Onto the artist, this has nothing to do with Godzilla. This is back to James Cameron. With <laughs> the art, yeah, because fucking Godzilla Minus One's a perfect movie. I will never insult that film. I'll never spoil it either for our audience that hasn't gotten to see it, but goddamn, it's beautiful. But you make these great treasures, and sure, they're pieces of art. They're, they're wonderful. He's made his own devices to do them with, but they have no effectiveness later. But then you look at his... 33-year-old movie, The Abyss, which is just as fucking effective now and didn't need anything else. It didn't need to be repolished. You could have just shown the original movie in theaters and it's just as damn good as it was the very first day it came out. It has emotion. It has characters. It has plot. It's driven somewhere. There's a point to the entire movie and it's articulated. It looks good. It's so much better than, and I don't mean to just say like Zack Snyder makes vapid films, but it's much better than the more vapid uh, comic book. He movies. makes vapid films. Don't don't sugarcoat that shit. He he's, makes he's vapid films. An artist in his own right, but it's just uh, art for people that don't fucking know what art is or care about it. And that to me is an insult. And I don't feel that way uh, entirely with James Cameron. But it's like, so you're just gonna uh, to him. It's, it's not, well, it's not his. It's not James Cameron's like specific fault. It's just the way like the art is going now. Like to me. This is a weird comparison, but we're going for it. The movie Badlands is infinitely more interesting and impressive to me than, say, something like Avatar. Because Avatar, it's all tinkered with, it's all screwed with, it's all, like, most of it's done on computers and all this fancy technology. And go to watch something like Badlands, which has beautiful photography, an interesting story, great acting, and all these things coming together. And they had to, like, 
they had to do these things like so in the beautiful photography you've got to wait till 4 15 p.m for it to look exactly like this and get the the color to the lighting that you want it to be the tone the uh the contrast to a point and you might have to sculpt that a little bit maybe you have to use some um some reflect boards to get it perfect maybe you have, like it's not like it's actual reality but still you're like you're having to twist a little bit of reality but Watch Badlands and tell me that is a like is not as beautiful as something painted like Avatar. Like the the treehouse scene specifically in Badlands, where where they've run away and they're out living like jungle people in these beautiful trees, Tarzan esque. Some of those shots are are just stunningly gorgeous. The light trickling through. There's some scenes where the light is just perfectly etched across Sissy Spacek's face, and you can almost see and count every single freckle she has. It's it's insanely gorgeous. And I your sentiment I stand by completely. I mean I, I love the art that he's making now, but I, I feel a loss of human touch with that art. And I feel that there is something so I've much lost more connection. passionate. That's what I have lost. That's why I also don't see as many movies as I used to. I don't feel per and that could just be because I'm fucking old, but I just don't feel that personal connection. It's still there. I thought um bones and all was a terrific movie. I completely connected with it. It emotionally affected me. It resonates with me, but so much else, like the abyss was technically a summer movie and it connects with me. But like, think of any summer movie now that like connects with you, like on an emotional level, not just of that was cool level, like that emotionally can connect with you. And it's just, it doesn't come around as much as it used to for me, at least. Well, even the the continuation of James Cameron's work, that's one of my problems with the Avatar series, is I just can't connect or emotionally relate to any of these characters, no matter how great the scans are, no matter how great the, the computers and graphics and all the imagery is, none of it feels more relatable. None of it feels like it really exists, and I understand this big fantasy story, but I can go watch the never-ending story and actually relate to these characters, even though they're fucking puppets, and I can relate to the idea of what these people are going through in the abyss. Even the there's a gorgeous scene where the alien is exploring them as they've explored it, and you've got this Terminator 2-esque thing that comes up out of the water, and it's beautiful. There's a scene where they touch it, and it, it you, you find yourself filled with this joy, and it seems so absolutely real, and I... And I, I think I gave Avatar 2 five stars this year. I think that was my official rating. Not that it fucking matters at all, because I think rating <laughs> no. movies is, is such a stupid thing. Do you like it? It's up to you. It's not up to fucking me to talk about it. But uh, I, I, it's... <sighs> It's five stars, but it's zero stars at the same time. And I, I have this discussion a lot on the show where I can think of movies, dog shit, and love it. Love it to death. Doesn't matter to me that it's bad. Mick Garris' Sleepwalkers, man, it's a fucking terrible movie, but I really, really <laughs> like it. You know, I like that movie. Avatar is so weird because I don't give a fuck about the characters. The story I never really seem to give a shit about. I just want to watch it and experience this weird feat that he has made. And it seems like a, a an utter reversal because even Terminator, you really care about the characters. Linda Hamilton's given it her fucking all. You know, everything seems like it's really versed in the world that we are living in, even aliens. It seems like a reality, and that's his Vietnam War epic. Now, 
I feel no sense of kinmanship with anything. And it's not just because it's specifically digital, but I think you're onto something with the fact that you had to make these amazing pieces. And the creativity behind James Cameron, to me, it almost seems like squandered being stuck in a computer all the time because he, he, he just thinks in such different ways if he was actually out there shooting again. I mean, like Oppenheimer, uh, a wonderful film, practical effects. They they blew up their own bomb to get these shots for the movie, and it was built up so wonderfully. And then I saw it in theaters, and it's like a 15-second thing. It's not about the bomb going off, but you sell the movie on, well, we we did it ourselves. We, we made a bomb. Now, they didn't actually drop an atomic bomb or anything, though. It's it's impressive. It's pretty cool. But if James Cameron had done that, we're talking about probably a devastating force that five cast members would die from. Well, like I think that's for Cameron being as much of like a maverick as he was back in the day and just doing all this crazy shit and even – you know, as tumultuous as his relationship with the actors were, I think that's honestly where he's at now is, well, now I don't have to, like, I don't have to ask these people to do things that are crazy. I'll just, you know, I'll just digitally do it, and nobody can tell me no, and I'm a dictator fully. I can have exactly the exact shot I want. I don't have to work with weather. I don't have to work with an unruly cast. I don't have to... I get exactly what I want. And I get that mentality as a director because it becomes about ultimate control over what you want to see. But what you're missing out on is mistakes. And I know that sounds stupid, but mistakes can be beautiful in film, especially where you have these like little things, like maybe the actor didn't give you the exact performance you wanted, but all of a sudden you're starting to appreciate that performance on a different level once you like go back and see it. Or just like there's so many different things that can happen when you're dealing with reality. We I always go back to the day of the dead thing. Always. The script is huge, couldn't get all the money, wrote a smaller script, made a much better movie. And I think with that adversity in filmmaking, it helps the creativity and it also helps kind of cement it in a period of time. And now I just think we've lost a lot of that ingenuity. It's all technical ingenuity and like with technology and not ingenuity on set on the day. I can't shoot outside. Where can I shoot now? Well, maybe we'll do this location. And all of a sudden you found this much better location or a location that feels like it informs the performances more or just those happy little accidents. And you miss that with having so much control over the final product, which is like, and do, do directors say Steven Spielberg, he makes that. What is it? Ready player one thing. And how much did Spielberg actually direct in that film? Cause there's barely any live action in it. It's mostly like digital stuff where people go into a virtual reality world, blah, blah, blah. Is he telling the digital artist what to do? Or is he just going in and going, yeah, that's fine. He's not doing any of that. And that's most of the movie. We're just slapping Steven Spielberg's name. He directed a few of the performances on the, uh, the like what month that he shot with the live actors and the rest of it's done by a group of underpaid people at computer banks who don't even get jobs anymore. They'll be replaced by artificial intelligence now. Yeah. And there's no soul to that. 
there's no soul to that at all. And that's what I miss so um, like about the film industry and the abyss is completely tied into this. I mean, it's funny. The abyss is an alien movie, but modern cinema seems like it's made by aliens. There isn't a human touch to it. We have so much that is computerized. There is no creation anymore. And the fact that it's so easily dismissed, well, we can fix that in post, but what if you fucking couldn't fix it in post? You know, you're talking about imperfections. The other day I was watching a Rainier Werner Fassbender movie. And I don't know if it was because of censors, it was a made-for-TV movie, but when people got shot, they couldn't make very big visceral scenes of it, which forced the actors to actually do their fucking job and act. So someone would get shot, there's no muzzle flash from the gun, there's no bullet entering them, there's no big blood. The actor had to convey the death and the pain and what the suffering that they were going through. And I found myself so shocked. I was watching Love is Colder Than Death, just so the audience can go find it themselves. I was just shocked by how real it was with no blood, no, just somebody held up a gun and a gun effect. That was it. But it took me aback. It was beautiful because you were forced to actually do something. Okay, we can't do this, this, and this. No one cares about the fucking story of what you couldn't do. It's what you actually got on screen that matters significantly more. So you don't have squibs. You don't have red blood packs. You still make the actors do it. Make it work. Now that you can depend everything on, well, let's do it in post, you don't have, and it's not that you have to have this touch. It's interesting enough, I, I have multiple synths, and many people argue that synth music isn't real, that it's the computers creating the music, but there's still a human touch behind it. There's still someone programming what's going on behind it. So you could have that argument for modern film, but we are quickly moving past that point that it's even people doing it. Now, everything can be fixed in post by just a button that says fix it in post. I have a software that will edit the podcast. It will register what a, po a, a cough is, or a sigh, and it'll just run through and cut those out. And when it does it, it leaves no breath, no nothing, so it just sounds like we're chipmunks talking for 90 minutes at a time, as fast as humanly possible. And these are fine for some people, fine for other people, but when you remove the humanity out of art, is it art anymore? Can robots make art? I don't, I don't think so. Well, it's no longer art. It's more of a consumable at this point. It's just, no, you watch it and you don't take anything from it with you. You spend, and I don't have a full problem with having disposable films like Megan was the disposable film. I enjoyed it when I watched it enough. It was like, well, that was, you know, Did you a good say waste Meg of or time. Megan, not Meg, not Meg, Meg two. Meg two is God fucking awful. Oh, I couldn't really? Stand all, really? Any of it. I hated it. We should do a Meg and Meg two show. I liked them both. First one's not terrible. The, the second one is just like, this is just a random grouping of scenes. I don't even know if there's a story throwaway films like there's no inherent story or value to meg but i saw that in theaters and again I, I was talking about this earlier some things are just made for the fucking ride like you're going to see kiss and that that it's a very kiss like show because all meg was or two especially was explosions and nonsense and jason statham doing the most unbelievable stuff on the planet but on the big screen i loved it if i sat down and watched it at home i bet it's going to be garbage but when you're on a 60 foot screen it was like fuck yeah this is great a great way to spend the afternoon i enjoyed the popcorn flick again that's that becomes more about consuming it's something to watch and go yeah that was fun 
And so, but you don't take anything with you. And the films that I love, I really love the ones that I've watched over and over again, they mean something to me. I take something with them, whether that be something emotional or something that I just like, wow, there's, that's a world I want to inhabit, or this is just interesting character. Like all those things just seem lost. They're just, well, it's just, we're back down to like trash, like exploitation trash. And I don't mean like good seventies exploitation. I'm talking just like, I don't know. It <sighs> Movies have just gotten very, very dull. They're just dull movies. And they're not really trying as hard because what's the point? Because no one cares and it'll be on streaming in six months anyway. And no one will remember it after that. And after it's gone. And that's just movies are supposed to be forever. Supposed to be watched infinitely for whenever. Well, our style of exploitation that we know and we love so much was made almost primarily to exploit the person watching it and exploit their senses. Now, exploitation is actually exploiting the person's wallet and who they are. That this is your entertainment, you take it, you like it. It doesn't matter that you're being exploited. There's nothing crazy. It's not like you're watching I spit on your grave and your senses are being disturbed and you're being exploited and forced into this world. Now it's, well, I watched 35 minutes worth of ads, including the theater's personal ads selling popcorn, uh, and now... I'm going to watch this two-hour movie that I'm never going to talk about again. And it just seems like this trivial thing. Like, well, that's what movies are for. And it's an odd era that we, we live in and move in now because that's the big argument. They're movies. They're just movies. But movies are art. You wouldn't you wouldn't go to a museum and look at the Mona Lisa and go, oh, it's just a fucking painting. Of course it's just a fucking painting. That's what any fucking painting is. It's just some fucking stuff on a canvas. But the invocation... And the feeling behind those things is what matters. And now when we have something that has no fucking feelings, it is just, it's nothing. It's not art. And there, I, I can't pick a it's specific... It's no longer movie. communication, because films, that's what they've always been about. They're all about touching somebody or communicating to people, of telling people the story. Like, this is the story that I want to tell. What does it mean to you? And I just don't feel that as much anymore. They exist, yes, but so much of it is just... Here, here, take this, and you're pretty much going to be on your phone the entire time, even if you're at the theater, and you're going to be checking your Facebook, and you're going to be like, watch it and scrolling through Twitter and on TikTok and all that. And you, you know, come back in five minutes so you can, uh, oh, you got to oh, text with your friend, go ahead. We'll wait on, like, the film will wait for you. It's like, no, fuck, fuck the audience. It doesn't even so much matter what the film is anymore, though. I mean, I went and saw A Christmas Story theatrically the other day, and almost the entire time the movie's running, this guy is in front of me. He's not using his phone. He's just pulling it out every three or four minutes to check and see what time it is. Like, it's A Christmas Story, man. Why did you spend $30 on tickets when you could watch it on Turner Broadcasting for 24 hours if you wanted because to get out of he, here? He, he, can say he saw it now. I saw it in the theater. Because it's a trophy. It's a trophy to wield. It all wraps up to the abyss. It really does. Because the whole point of all of this is this is event filmmaking that is capturing particular moments in time. And that's what makes the film work. It's one of it gives it its emotional core. And what makes like that's the communication to the audience It's trying to communicate these very personal human emotions. And movies since are 
just not quite doing it the same way that they were. And I miss things like the abyss, even the things like in this that I don't think work. Um, it's better than a lot of the other stuff that comes out now because they're not having that core story. It's, I don't know. It just makes me sad watching something like this and going, God damn, look at this huge tentpole fucking movie that was a, like supposed to be a summer blockbuster. They spent all this time, money, energy on. Look at all the like the commitment the people had. Look, t- like listen to the behind the scenes stories of Ed Harris almost dying, and now what? Okay, well that's interesting, and the history is interesting. Okay, well, give me the history of your movie. Well, we showed up on set, and there was a giant green screen, and then we like pretend played for a while. We improved and. They said like 10 funny things and we edited those down to two. That's kind of what I'm missing is just that human element's gone. Even the making of human elements gone. It's like, it's just so much autopilot and no one's showing a commitment to it. Like these fuckers had to like, they worked like they shot for like six months, five to six months. But even before they started shooting, they had to like train and prep and learn how to dive and learn how to be safe and like learn valuable life skills. This is all behind the scenes crap that doesn't even matter to the film. But it there's a story there. There's like commitment to art. And now it's just so about nothing but commercialism and just here's the product. They showed up and spoke into the camera in front of a green screen. And then I told Todd and his team of 150 to put a monster back there. All right, fun. Oh, it's a Sasquatch movie. Oh God. What a good idea. Making another Sasquatch movie on the cheap, cheap smart. Yeah. I'm just like, that's what I'm fed up with. It's just, no one is putting any of that heart, soul effort into making films like the abyss. Like it's just so crazy. Even this was supposed to be such a big hit that it started a whole trend of movies in 1989 about basically underwater alien. And you have deep star six, which was released before any of them and bombed. And you have Leviathan, you have Lords of the deep. Yeah, Leviathan always sticks out in my mind because there's such a different contrast that they just shot in dark rooms. So all the underwater scenes. Oh, they, yeah, they smoked out a bunch of miniatures and shit like they didn't even shoot any water. Well, you're talking about sometimes how like these behind the scenes things don't matter. But at the same time, I think they really do, because a lot of these experiences, goddamn aliens and the abyss, these people were forced to work with each other for months and months and months and months beforehand. So they formed a legitimate camaraderie and all of that is very apparent on screen it's what worked so well with George Ramirez Knight Riders because he used his what he called family the unit that he'd been shooting all of his previous films with they knew each other personally they loved each other they truly were a family even down to the smallest details like John Amplis as the mime all of these people were intricate important parts of the production to this but when all of them knew each other that's what gives that beautiful kind of tint to the abyss that everyone does seem so real it doesn't seem like we're watching actors at all that it's some sort of uh, Discovery Channel documentary about these people and that there's just a camera there they really seem real and that's such a weird contrast and difference that like Titanic sure 
I guess they seem real. I think that's a bit more on the borderline with James Cameron's work. But what I struggle with uh, with his newer films in the Avatar series is this. Sure, they're real and you get to see them. And the guy was a Marine and now he's a big blue thing. But there's some uh, connective tissue that just seems to be lacking in it. And it's funny that a great deal of the problems with modern cinema you can kind of blame James Cameron for because he comes up with all this fucking software, he comes up with all these cameras, and then they're used by the masses to create much lesser things. His still managed to have uh, an invocative nature to it, but not by much. And I I find it hard-pressed. I mean, just us doing this episode and talking about it and running titles through my head, there isn't a lot that comes to mind like Saving Private Ryan kind of does with movies that have the camaraderie and the uh, familial ship of these characters that they actually feel like real people. But, you know, Saving Private Ryan is, is a massive, huge, big budget war epic. It's, it's a different gladiator kind of. Again, a huge, big budget, massive movie. It's the way that the art form is going. And as an old codger, it's just not a way that I like for it to go because it's just, I think you've lost the essence and the heart of what cinema means. And once you lose that much, cause at the end of the day, avatar is a cartoon. I don't care how well things are modeled. I don't care how like great the CGI is and the 3d and it looks a hundred percent real. It does not matter because it isn't real. It's a cartoon. And cartoons can be, you know, well-written and emotional, but it's still just a, it's a it, it's not something that happened it's not even somebody trying to trick me into believing it happened like think about like cannibal holocaust and the uproar that started like someone's even trying to trick me into believing this happened blair witch project that magic is gone because no one is even trying to like say that any of this like, nah we drew it we drew it all and it will never suspend your disbelief whatsoever because at the end of the day, you know what you're seeing on the screen is not even close to possible. We're no longer even trying to do a magic trick. So it just does not have that. Oh God, that feeling that ever evolving feeling of like being amazed and being tricked even by a film and it's just that's gone for me because there is there are no tricks left. It's just like, yeah, it's all just fake. All of it's fake. We're not even trying to attempt to make our actors look like they like each other. They set up, they did the lines, and that's it. Well, film used to be almost like time traveling, that you could go back and you could see the Roman Empire. You could go see 17th century England. And now things are so easy through filters and the click of a button that you can just shoot in some crappy studio. And now all of a sudden you're in Whitechapel and Jack the Ripper is just around the corner. But when you had to force that gothic touch, when you had to make that, even if it was something out of styrofoam, I'd rather watch an Amicus production yes. where you can tell you're just on some crappy set. And God, I hate taking things back to masters of horror but look at coscarelli's first episode it's very obvious that we're on a set but it looks fucking great it looks real you can feel when she gets hit in the face with leaves and stuff as she's running from the villain there's a believability even to the most fakest things when you actually have talent doing it when you have people acting and forcing things and not again to condone the behavior of james cameron on the set of the abyss but 
fuck it, sometimes when you almost drown your actors, you seem to get a really great performance out of them, and it worked. Well, there's a story there. Like, Ed Harris, I'm sure has, like, gone on for the last 30 years, but, yeah, I punched James Cameron once. He has a story to tell. What stories are being told? Like, what's happening on film sets these days? Does anybody even talk to each other? Does anybody even, like, because it's just, you don't have to do shit. You're not living through a moment together. You're just... Like, you're there to show up and make fucking donuts and go home like any other job. Does any of this mean anything to you, or are you just worried about how well it's going to inflate your asking price for your next film? Because that's what it all feels like to me. That's what every last bit of it, like, just, it's all, like, it's all 100% sellout. Everybody, they're just dying to sell out. Just give me more money to do more crap. It's fine. It's easy to do this crap. And it's not even so much selling out as it's just what it is now. It's just trying to get into a position where that's what you make. And it's so bananas seeing like beautiful, beautiful artists like Ryan Johnson he made a movie called Brick. It It is a gorgeous, beautiful film. I, I think I could say it's one of my favorite movies on a, a list of at least 20 Brick is going to appear on it. And then you go watch his Star Wars films, and it's so unbelievable that it's the same person. And good, I'm glad that you've moved up in the world and that you can make tons of money being a film director. But what happened to the art that existed previously? And, I mean, that's a big-budget movie. It had Joseph Gordon-Levitt in it. Brick is a pretty nicely shot couple-million-dollar films. Jeremy Saulnier, I mean, he's not gone on to Star Wars ranks yet, but these guys were making really invocative, emotional pieces of art. And it just is bizarre how the machine works now that once you get wrapped up into it, it's like, well, here's your new giant-budget Star Wars movie, here's whatever— and you you get to this point in your career where no nothing matters art doesn't matter anymore we just got to make whatever we're getting and it's because it's consumerism and capitalism obviously and that's what you got to fucking buy into but there still should be a middle ground and that's people scream you know it's that's what indie is well as you're talking it it's just made me like kind of sit here and think about it there is the middle ground it's just there's no longer movies it's all goddamn netflix series like, that's where you're getting everything with, like, the emotional core and people who are, I mean, yeah, some of them are really abuse CGI, but some of them, like, your heartfelt stories, your stories that people actually want to tell are, like, four to five to eight episode miniseries. Like, look at something like Midnight Mass. It's just, as opposed to trying to make a two-hour movie about, like, what Midnight Mass is, uh, Mike Flanagan makes a TV series out, drags it out a little too long for my taste. I think the story is shorter than he made it, but it had to be an eight episode run. It's what's required of him. But at the same time, it's just, it's full of that old school, like Hollywood filmmaking stuff that I, I love. And even like old school fucking regional filmmaking where it's just, it's people really trying to make a piece of art. And I just, I think so much of that has gone from the film industry. The film industry is kind of dying and we're just, we're getting into series and streaming, which can be okay, but it kind of overcorrects in a lot of ways too, because sometimes that shit gets way too long winded. 
know what your story is and how long it actually needs. It doesn't have to be a, a two-hour movie, but it also doesn't have to be eight fucking episodes and eight hours long. Can we have one that's four and a half hours long? Or yeah, but that's really where what's happened is just it's all that's moved to streaming because no studio, all studios want to do is turn a billion dollars with a theatrical released film. So films are just not what they used to be. It's all just about theme park rides. We interrupt this episode of Death by DVD with a brief word from one of our sponsors. turkey done it smells great it sure is i had to get up at 3 a.m to start cooking but it sure seems to smell like it was worth it yeah remember last year we didn't even get to try the turkey because of cousin jesse i really thought rehab would have helped him but he seems worse now than ever well we won't have to worry about that this year Really? Yes, I made a turkinol just for Cousin Jesse. Wait, what? Isn't that where they stuff a turkey with a duck and a chicken? No, silly. Turkinol, it's the turkey that will save the holidays. Turkinol! <laughs> the turkey that saved the holidays. Nearly everyone knows a person suffering from the opioid epidemic. And boy, howdy, doesn't nothing ruin the holidays more than a cousin, uncle, brother, sister, significant other, or child whacked out on crack, smack, whack, puff, spun, wazoos, whackers, wigglers, Sacagawea gold, the old giggle sticks. Now, you can have that silly cousin Jesse nodding off on the couch with Uncle Dan, but it won't be the tryptophan that's got Jesse down for the count. It's tranquilizers. Sweet, sweet tranquilizers. Tons and tons of tranquilizers. Wow! Each Turkinol is stuffed full of the very same tranquilizers Hollywood doctors use on Mel Gibson when he becomes enraged over women being able to vote and people of color. You need a fucking bat in the side of the head. Alright? How about that? I'm threatening I'll put you in a fucking rose garden, you cunt. You understand that? Because I'm capable of it. You understand? Talk to your healthcare provider today about a prescription for Turkinol and save the holidays. Wow. Tranquilizers, huh? I wouldn't mind a little piece of that myself. Oh, you.
I seriously hope, though, your your cousin Jesse doesn't overdose in the bathroom again. The kids aren't okay. They're they're really upset about it. They don't. I still don't know what to tell them. It's been a year. And uh, while we're on the subject, I don't like Uncle Dave being alone with the little girls. I, you know, there's everyone in the family says something about him and rumors like that. They they just don't start. And I just don't think he needs to be around them on the holidays. It's just one of those. Darkenhall. New from Deathco. Well, when you kind of think about it, Cameron is sort of like a Caligula-style emperor that, despite doing lots of bad things, they did a bunch of good things, but it was like the beginning of the end and the burning of the Roman Empire with these massive directors getting millions and millions of dollars to do whatever they want to, to, to make an underwater world and old nuclear towers and all this crazy shit, and we move so abruptly into this new era, I, it could be potentially because of people like James Cameron that, yeah, we, we, we gave like $500 million to this guy and he blew up five buildings and we can't keep making movies like this. We can't keep doing things like this. And of course, in the same time period of massive budget movies, you've had issues like The Twilight Zone where actors and children were fucking brutally murdered by goddamn helicopter blades, eviscerated, because too many people are pushing money at something and not paying attention to the rules and the boundaries. You have uh, similar incidents with uh, Brandon Lee on The Crow, that you throw millions and millions of dollars uh, at, at this artist, and the artist isn't really giving a shit about the people and what's happening, and now we've transitioned into this hurt-free, pain-free, we can do everything very easily, we can fix it all in post. Unless you are working with Alec Baldwin. And you've got the debacle and the debate, but you look at somebody like James Cameron and they, they are... They're a fault and they are a problem, but they also are a visionary artist because Cameron has given yes. us incredibly visionary and beautiful things that are real, but he is kind of the reason that studios push away from these these types of movies because people can be hurt. There is so much threat to people that aren't people anymore because once you get so famous, you're a brand. It's not that they care what happens to Brad Pitt, the guy. They care about what happens to Brad Pitt, who they insured for like a billion fucking dollars to make this movie. And that's where the problem comes in. That everything has become so blown out of proportion statistically that could you even make a movie like this? Like, I don't. If you made The Abyss now, what's that one with uh, Twilight? Well, fuck, that's such a terrible thing to call her. But that's underwater. What, underwater. It is not bad. 
It is yeah, okay, Yeah, that's what I mean. Man. Even for the CGI, even for the fact that it wasn't shot underwater, that movie was still... Oh, they still did some real stuff, though. I'm okay with that. And it felt nice. Like, that's the thing. You don't have this, like, everybody claps at the end with the abyss feeling, but it fucking felt like a movie. You can still capture things. There was the third movie in that series. God, I fucking suck at doing a podcast that I don't know the names of any of the movies I'm going to talk about. But where they're all in space and you find out that it's a third part to that one footage found movie. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, that Cloverfield? The third Cloverfield. There we go. Look at the brain on Brad. The third Cloverfield, I liked. It felt like a genuine 60s space story. I felt like they were in space. Even that fucking one that Ryan Reynolds and Jake Gyllenhaal did. I didn't have any problem with that. That was fine. I kind of hated Interstellar, though. Fucking four hours of Matthew McConaughey <laughs> crying. That, I, no, that doesn't do it for me. But there's still stuff that has feelings. It's not like we're on some soapboxes saying every fucking movie made after 1989 No, it's not everything. Sucks. It's just, it's more on what event films have become. Because event, Batman 89, I mean, that was an event film, and it, ended up killing the abyss at the box office because it just couldn't stop making money. But again, so much artistry in putting that film together and just so how elaborate it is. And we've just lost a lot of that revolutionary spirit in trying to be that elaborate. They just want to be big and they want to make a bunch of money out of it and they want to shoot it quick. So it's just, it's how much of it's filmmakers versus studios. It's back and forth. Some filmmakers really embrace it, and other ones don't necessarily fight against it. They just they fight against overusing it, and that's just. I mean, it, I think it's become more of a matter of taste. But it, with age, that's starting to like it, the CG is starting to win out, and also films for people with no attention span is. That's why so many horror films do so well at the theater, because it's easy to get a teen audience in people willing to spend money and a horror film is always going to, it's always trying to do something. Oh, it's a horror film. It's going to try to scare me. We'll see what it's going to like. We'll see what it does. You know, it's the haunted house at the theme park and they can sit there and get on their phone. And that's why everything is so many jump scares now, because most people are flipping through their phone and then a loud noise. Oh, well this one's really effective because jump scares and there's great horror films in there. I'm saying there isn't. I mean, they've, especially in the last like four or five years, there's been a lot of great theatrical horror films. But that's why they do so well is attention spans are a lot lower and people aren't wanting to be emotionally moved by film as much as they I used don't even to, really. know if it's so much attention span sometimes as audiences have just gotten plain dumber. I mean, I'm seeing people left and right complaining about the politics in Godzilla Minus One. Can't you keep the politics out of Godzilla? What the fuck are you talking about? What what keep the politics out of Godzilla? The fucking monsters created because we nuked them. That's fucking, that's the whole point of the story. It's all politics. I just can't They want to go it. back to the days of Son of Godzilla and fighting a giant lobster. I don't want movies with politics. I want something like Videodrome. Oh, fuck you. Oh, suck my goddamn dick, motherfucker. And you see people say stuff like this. Movies back in the day just didn't have politics. Like, what happened to good war movies like Apocalypse Now? What? Fuck you, man. Fuck you, Johnny audience. And the the abyss is riddled with it, but it's like it 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 
it's kind of like an outsider looking in. I don't think it's overtly Canadian of James Cameron, but a big portion of the movie is kind of like a dick war between the Russians and the United States. And it is an outsider looking in, but it's very apt in this situation because everything that happens in the movie would have happened in real life if they had any clue or thought that there might be interference from the Russians now or then they would have armed nuclear warheads. It would have gone on that fast that the world wouldn't have known it. I mean, atrocities and genocide can be committed overnight and people blink their eyes and they pretend that it doesn't happen. Why would it be any different in the film? Well, this was the Death by DVD 2023 holiday special, but it does seem more like the Festivus special because we have all aired our grievances. And I don't think it's for better or worse. I mean, you can take it as two old guys shaking their fist at the sky, but I don't think we said anything that wasn't true. I guess it really, at the end of the episode, doesn't matter if you like the Abyss or if you don't. It's, it's there regardless. I mean, it is truly... A cinematic feat. It's it's like Cecil B. DeMille accidentally killing all of his extras, making that huge flood in the Ten Commandments. It really is a historical piece of man really did this. But it's strange. It doesn't seem like it's been that long of a time from when this movie came out to when movies like this just don't matter anymore. It doesn't matter because it's not... CGI, it doesn't matter because it doesn't have Chris Pine in it, it just doesn't seem to matter, and it's weird that these are almost like lost movies, but they're not lost. Well, I think a good portion of it is that, like, it used to be, like, James Cameron, you can tap him and kind of guarantee when you give him that amount of money, you're going to get something fairly large and impressive. But now with something like CG, almost anybody with any budget can make something large and try to be impressive. And that's kind of one of the big differences is like it once you've like opened that up and now everybody just doesn't even have to think about it anymore. They write some crazy ass scene. Don't think about how much it's going to cost. Don't think about anything. And then they just do it. So you just get a bunch of mediocre art. You get a bunch of child's drawings. There are no stuntmen. There are no people behind the scenes. It's kind of depressing. It's bleak. What a great way to end the Christmas special. <laughs> it's bleak. It's depressing. It's all darkness and black. But maybe it can shine and help create an appreciation for people. If you're listening to this and haven't thought about things like this, go look at movies, even like Conan the Barbarian. There are some oh, amazing God. scenes. I mean, it's there's sleight of hand and there are plenty of backgrounds that are just matte paintings and things like that, but it's gorgeous. Fucking Blade Runner. Uh, 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 um, Escape from New York. Just, just great, gorgeous films that are the practicality of humans. Also, the Roger Corman School of fucking filming because so many... Uh, things in those films are sleight of hands, but they were so much better for it. 2000 and motherfucking won a space odyssey. There is not a film that takes place in outer space to this day that looks 
as sparse and shocking and scary as that film looks. And they were forced to goddamn make it. Make it actually happen. That's beautiful. Even on the, the Kubrickian level, The Shining. Such a bland, boring setting. It's a fucking hotel. And he made it look like an entire world, an entire realm. He changed it. And that's just art design. That's, that's cinematography. We, we briefly had discussed on this episode talking about The Abyss some of the cast and crew and people that worked on it, but Leslie Dilly is the one that made all of those costuming designs and did all the production design work on this film. They also did uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and some of the other films we've made fun of on this episode, like Deep Impact, What About Bob? It's a great film. Casper, The Friendly Ghost. It was using people, and I guess that's my point, is it's, it's, it's finding people that were good at their craft and bringing them forward. Now you don't need anyone. Now, you don't need anyone to do something like that. I made the joke about Survival Quest being all done through an agency. What the fuck happened to those agencies? You don't need them anymore. Now you just go through some digital scan of the actor. I mean, fuck, they can start making movies with James Dean. Somebody's been trying to for two or three years. Two or three years. More like 20 at this point. He's fucked. He's been dead like 65 years. Just let him be dead. <laughs> Stop it. But he was a brilliant actor in those three movies he was in. Well, he was good in like two and a half of them, but that's just me. We did talk about The Abyss for a great period of time on this episode, though. I will give it to us. We stayed on subject. Kind of. And with that, I suppose we wish you a Merry Christmas at this point. That's the part of the show, but we can't. you don't say that anymore. So we just say, and this isn't like a war on Christmas thing. I don't want some cunt to think like, oh, yeah, yeah, the guys from Death by DVD are with me. We should be saying Merry Christmas. Nope, I just don't know what to call the episode. We used to call them the Christmas special because it comes out late December. Uh, but we talked about the abyss for almost two fucking hours and haven't mentioned it once. <laughs> but there will be like ho, ho, ho music and holiday stuff on this episode because that's what the people like. I hope you've had considering what's going on in the world a, a safe and happy holiday and we'll keep it at that can't say merry christmas so happy holidays from everyone at death by dvd and if not fuck you all right just just fuck you we, just stop sending me emails about what you don't like send me emails about stuff you like try that on for size i'm dying at this outro you got anything <laughs> I don't know. I'm just listening to you guys go. I don't. You probably could have like. You're probably gonna go back and edit and find like oh, five yeah. to six different cut points. So there's a bunch of stuff getting cut out of this episode. Woo! <laughs> hey, that leads it into the end. Did you know that you can hear uncut episodes of Death by DVD, even watch episodes of Death by DVD, and much, much more on our Patreon? You can go to our website, deathbydvd.com, and click the page that says Patreon to find out more, or you can just skip the middleman and go to www.patreon.com slash deathbydvd. $4. You can support us. You can unlock so much fun stuff, unboxing videos, exclusive content, nowhere else, Death by DVD's summer school, a whole hoot, and a holler. You have been listening to the Death by DVD 2023 holiday special. It's the Abyssmus. It's beginning to look a lot like the Abyssmus. Yeah, I can't. I don't have any other lyrics. I can't sing. That's it. The ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. We will return 
next year, 2024. 15 years of death. Thank you. That's all. Until next time, be pleasant. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. of Death by DVD will be available for your listening displeasure. Visit The Crypt at DeathByDVD.com where over 150 blood-curdling episodes are awaiting your ears. We've got horror. There's gore. A little cold. Some slashers. You can find twisted psychotronic trash, weird cheesy drive-in movies, true crime audio dramas, and strange, rare, lost, frightening films.
at deathbydvd.com, there's a little something. For everyone. New episodes coming soon. Death by DVD is available to stream and download directly at www.deathbydvd.com where episodes are always available first. Be sure to subscribe for email updates about new episodes, merch discounts, and more. Death by DVD is also available everywhere podcasts can be found. Apple, Amazon, Good Pods, Spotify. Just search for Death by DVD. Death by DVD is broadcast from on top of the Blue Crystal Sunshine Mountain in any town USA with transmitters on top of the Empire State Building. and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. <laughs>